Again, it's my privilege tonight to introduce to you our mission leader, Mrs. Judith Dunlap. She mentioned this morning when she was speaking to us at Mass that for her it was like uh, coming home. And in many respects, uh, for me too, I had that same experience because uh, Judith and I uh, ministered together. I'm not going to say this how long ago, but it was. It was 40 years ago, okay? Because that's how long. Uh, that's how long I have known. That's how long I have known Judith, and I was just what I call a baby priest. Okay, um, when I was with her at St. Pius X Parish, and uh, she began, I would say, her her ministry when I was so young myself at that time, and uh, she was working in our youth ministry at that time in the parish. And a little bit of history for you, because as you know. Seton Parish uh, was carved out of St. Pius X Parish. Part of it was, much, much of it was, actually. And um, she was involved in our youth ministry there, which was called CIA, okay? Christ is Alive. And uh, that's how Seton Parish youth, okay, got its name, Spy. Many people don't know that, that Spy, okay, was connected to CIA. Okay, so that's a little bit of uh, that's a little bit of history for you, and uh, we still have spy, but I think St. Pius has kind of lost their their acronym, but we still have it. So that's a little bit of history. And back way back then, uh, Judith and I were working together in youth ministry and doing retreats. I remember doing many retreats with the youth there. We went to a Girl Scout camp called Camp Crooked Lane, and we did some. Wonderful, wonderful uh, retreats there with our youth. And I don't think he's here tonight, but uh, also a member of our team was a fellow that many of you know here who's still involved in ministry, Jesse Pope. Okay, and um, so they go, we go way back then. And then I think it was from that involvement in the ministry that uh, Judith wanted to immerse herself more fully. And she's actually started uh, going and taking classes at the Josephinum at that time and uh, really beginning her for more serious studies. And uh, Judith is mother of, I didn't mention this, she didn't mention this to you, I didn't mention it, she's mother of five children, okay, and uh, 10 grandchildren. In the midst of having a, a big family, uh, she continued her, her study and devotion. And uh, her, her ministry, I think what's really been so special in her ministry is that her ministry flows out of her family and her family life and continues to this day, and that's what has been so enriching in terms of her ministry, and I think you'll find that's why her mission is going to be uh, so enriching to us, because it's so closely connected um, to her family, and much of her work in religious education has been around family ministry, and some of her writing has been involved in how we bring um, the sacraments and how we bring our faith alive in our families, because then it flows right out of her own ministering and being a mother, grandmother, wife, all of this so closely connected to her own life. So uh, with that, I'd like to introduce to you to now, now Mrs. Judith Dunlap. We're going to start out by saying this prayer that you should have all received since it's St. Patrick's Day. Good. Thank you. And then I'm going to tell you some stories about Father Jim. <laughs> Christ shield me today against wounding. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on the right. Christ on the left. Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, speaks of me, sees me, hears me. Amen. So anyway, when we moved to Dayton, we had all these little kids. There were five of them, as you know. Father Jim used to come. Where is he? There he is. He used to come on Fridays. He'd call like on Wednesday and say, can I just come for an overnight? And he'd come... And, and as he'd leave, I'm not sure if he ever quite said it, but I know Roger and I thought it, he is reaffirming his vow of celibacy. 
I really think that's true. Every once in a while, he'd say, let me see what it's really like. Thank you, Jesus. What? Oh, we went camping many times. Tomorrow I'll tell you a camping story, okay? <laughs> so here we are today. Um, our theme is Beyond the Great Lie, the biggest lie. Make sure this all works, all right? The biggest lie in the history of Christianity. That's by Matthew Kelly. How many of you read the book? Yeah, I, I, read it, I read it and put all kinds of notes in it and everything else. Uh, and in the beginning, what I'm going to do is this three nights, this, this, tonight I'm going to take like the first third of the book, tomorrow night the second third, yeah, and then the last night the, the last third of the book. So tonight's the first third. And what he talks about in the first third of the book is first the lies and promises of modern culture. And I'm going to talk about the what and the whys of those. So the what's he mentions, and some that I came up with myself, are this. First of all, that things bring us happiness. That we need to have more and more things. That we have to have the right food. That we have to go to the right restaurants. That we have to have a new car every time. And that this will make us happy. And he spends a lot of time talking about that. Now, I know when I used to do talks to parents, I used to say this to them, and I can't remember who the quote is from, but it was from a, a gentleman who studied sociology and, and the media at the time. And what he said was this, that everything that TV teaches, not just the ads and the advertisements, but everything that, almost everything that TV is about gives us this message. You are what you have, and what you have is not enough. And that's what our culture kind of says. And we can get into that mindset. It's so easy to do that. I do it all the time. My, um, now that I've given up smoking and meat, and I never really drank that much, but drinking. Um, my thing is clothes now. I can become obsessed with going to Chico's and buying the latest thing that's on sale. So it's, it seems like there's always something that drives us, some material thing that can bring us happiness. And, and what Kelly tells us in his book is, is that's the culture telling us that. But when we get to the story of Adam and Eve, and we're going to talk about that today, we're going to, we're going to see how that's from the very beginning from the very beginning of the first man and woman, when that fall happened, when that fall from grace happened, that came into, into the, the way we think. I need more. The second is we are in a youth culture. And I have never noticed, oh, yeah, I did the work. I've never noticed that as much as I have been getting older and older and older. But I think it's getting worse and worse and worse. Look at the commercials, look at the advertisements in magazines, look at social media. What cream can you put on that's going to get rid of the wrinkles or stop the wrinkles? What can I do to stay young? What can I do to this? And then, then there's this putting aside of the elders. My friends and I were talking about how sometimes we feel like we're not listened to anymore. Now. I don't know, you're all younger than I am. But, you know, we've got these five kids who are all grown up now. I mean, really grown up. None of them are under 40. And they're starting to look at Roger and I like we don't think anymore, <laughs> you know? Mom, I'll do that for you. I've been doing it for 54 years. But they mean well, and I do know that for those of you who are young, I know that, that, that you absolutely mean well. And the truth is, I don't see myself as they see me. They see me going down. I have all kinds of stuff going on in my body. And they see how I hurt, and they see how diff more difficult it is for me to get around in the kitchen. So I know they're doing it out of love. But there is this whole thing in our culture that you need to be young. And I see it in friends of mine who are fighting, fighting, fighting getting older. 
I, uh, probably about five years ago, when I saw my sister had done it, stopped coloring my hair, and her hair was white like mine. And I thought, oh, that looks good. And so I stopped coloring my hair, and it saved me a lot of money, okay? And it's much more comfortable. And this is nothing against those of you who color my hair. I actually, I know I look older. And, and, and it was at that time, because that's when people stopped saying, oh, you couldn't possibly be that old, okay? That's when people stopped saying that. <laughs> because I was looking as old. <laughs> and that's when I had to make that adjustment. You know what? I'm getting older. And I did have to live through that. And, and I kind of lived through it in quiet and, and come to terms with it. And, um, and I'm okay with it. I don't like the hurts. I don't like the aches. I don't like having to go as many doctors I have to go to. I don't like any of that part of it. But I kind of like being this age. Because I don't apologize for a lot of things I used to apologize for. All right? You know, I just kind of... Um, <laughs> I'm an elder now, okay? That's, that's kind of my thing. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'm an elder now, all right? So, so this whole youth culture thing is another trap of our culture. And in so many cultures, there are, they value their elders. They seek out the wisdom of their elders. That's, that is not the case in our culture. You know that's true. Um, although I will say this, and I, I don't... I hate to say it, but it wasn't until my kids turned about 40 that they started valuing the things we said all of a sudden. I mean, you'd think it would be earlier, but truly it wasn't. All of a sudden, they're coming back and saying, you know, you were right, Mom. You were right, Dad. And they are valuing us for who we are. But the culture on a whole does not value the youth. The third lie is that... Um, Medicine will take care of all of your woes. Well, those of us my age know that that's not true. But what's happened in our society is that we over-medicate. You know, that's true. You know, that's a problem with the whole opioid thing. Um, I went through, I had my back fused, I had a hip replaced, and then they had to go in two more times because... I broke my femur, and then, then there was a staph infection and all kinds of stuff. So I kind of know what pain is about. And I, I thank God for the medicine that I could take that could help me with that. But I also know how easy it would become to become addicted to that. All right? Not that I ever experienced any high from it, but I do know, I do know today how wonderful it would be to not hurt every day. And those of you who I, uh, many of you who are close to my age may experience what I'm experiencing. Day, there isn't a day that doesn't go by that I'm not hurting. It's just a part of, of getting older. And, and it would be so easy to medicate that away. But you know what? It's not just the pain and the medical things that we over-medicate with. It's um, the whole drug situation where I want to get away from my problems. So I'm going to try to take something to escape, to escape the mental pain I'm in, the emotional pain I'm in. And I'm just going to take it for a little while until I get through this divorce, through this loss of a job, through this um, whatever. The why for that, the why for all of that is advertisement. A culture uh, that wants to sell, sell, sell at any costs, even our drug companies, okay? Who want to sell and make a profit, who want to sell cosmetics and make a profit. Um, the truth is, and I think you know this, is uh, you can't find happiness uh, in cars, in new clothes in money, in power, power, power. So many people seek that, and yet you can't find happiness there. Think of all the wealthy people who seem to have everything who commit suicide. Okay? They didn't find happiness, obvious. 
So let's look at the, the next one. The lies and promises we tell ourselves. The what's and the whys. I'm not good enough. That's the primary one that we're born with. I'm, I'm, I swear we're born with it. I'm not good enough. Um, I wish I were more like so-and-so. I try my best, but I can never be. I, I tell this story, and I've told it at my parish. I go to Tuesday morning mass because I do centering prayer on Tuesday morning with the centering prayer group. And, um, and I sit in the back. And this, this has, happened to me, okay? Sitting in back, and I'm looking at all the people in front of me. And I'm seeing all of these holy people, because I've been in the parish 35 years and I know them, all of these holy people. And I, and I say to God, and I, I honestly, gosh, mean this, Lord, I am the worst. I am one of the worst Christians. See, people see me up here talking, and you think, there's a holy person. Well, I am holy, but you know what? I am no holier than any one of you, and that's the truth, but we'll get to that later. But, but the fact of the matter is, I sit in the back of church, and I look at all those people, and I know who they are. There are some really elderly people, and some young people, too, with their children who are homeschooling, and I think, oh, God, they are so good. They are what it means to be a Christian. I am the worst Christian ever. Then, what comes into my crazy mind is this. Oh, but how humble you are to think you are the worst Christian ever. <laughs> so you see, I can never leave it. I can never make it work. That's okay, Jeff. That's how I've judged myself all my life, okay? I'm either not humble enough, I'm not proud enough, I'm not good enough. Um, I'm a good cook, and people will say, you, you, are such, you are such a great baker. I love the things you make. And I will always say, oh, but have you tasted Sue Merlin's perks? Okay. It's like you have to be the best. The lies we tell ourselves is, I have to be the best at it, or I'm not good at it. The lies we tell my, ourselves is, I am not enough. All right? The other thing is... Um, we must be successful. Now, my husband and I have gone around this for long, a long and so many times. What does it mean to be successful? My husband is a great man. He's raised five wonderful children. He's a tremendous success. But somehow it was drummed into him, and I think this is men more than women, or at least in my era it was, that to be successful means you make a lot of money and you have a high position within a company. Then you are a success. All right, And so you judge yourself that way. That's the lie you tell yourself. If I made enough money, if I were the vice president of the company, then I would be a success. That's what success means. Okay? We women are the other side. And I don't, I really don't mean to say this anymore because I think uh, it's changed in the last few years. But women in my generation will say, or think we have to be all things to all people. So I have to take care of everyone. I have to make sure, even though I was working, well, that's another story, even though I was working full time, all right, and raising my five children, I still felt like I had to put a full meal on the table, including desserts, which were often Oreo cookies, but including some sort of a dessert, and, and uh, be, be the perfect mom the perfect wife, the perfect DRE, the perfect friend, okay? So the lies we tell ourselves are, I'm not enough. And somehow you can get to be uh, 97, do everything in God's green earth and with his, within his good church and still feel like you're not enough. We tell ourselves that to be successful, I have to have money and power. And we tell ourselves that I have to do everything for everyone. And the why? Um, it's because we think we have to be perfect. You know, one of the big themes is this holiness. The, the, we're going to find out that the biggest lie is that holiness is impossible. 
And it's, it's a lie because we have this thing in our head that says, if I'm going to be holy, I'm going to be perfect. Well, you know, and you know this, I will probably say nothing in these three days that you don't already know, okay? But you know this in your heart, that only God is perfect. Is that correct? Yes. Only God is perfect. The greatest saints were not perfect. The greatest saints were sometimes so hard to live with. The greatest saints would often have these little things that just annoyed the people around them. The greatest saints sinned. And I'm not just talking about Augustine who sinned before he became holy, but saints who sinned on the road to holiness. Because we are not judged by God by this day or that day. We are judged by God by the whole journey that we take. And it's not at the end of our life, this is who I am. It's this is who I have been. It's a long journey. So that's the why. The third one is lies told about Christianity and the Christian faith. That's the third thing that, that Matthew Kelly talks about. And, and the first one is that Jesus didn't exist. And my son had a friend who he and I would get in the biggest arguments. He'd say, it's Jesus never existed. And I'd say, yes, we have historical knowledge. We have it written down that Jesus existed. And he said, no, those are all Christian or Jewish writers. And I'd say, no, it's in the Roman history books that this Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Jesus existed. Now, uh, truth of the matter is, and you, again, uh, Everything in scripture, all, all the gospel, all the stories in there, um, are absolutely true. But, as one of the great saints said, all of everything we read in scripture is true, and some of it actually happened. Do you hear that? Everything in scripture is true. Everything in the gospels is true about Jesus. And some of it actually happened. There is actually a list of about 10 things, and I, I meant to find it and I couldn't find it in my files, of, of what we can absolutely say about Jesus. Everything else may be true, maybe metaphor, maybe an account that was heard this way or that way. But what it says about Jesus is true, all right? Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus, uh, as Paul tells us in Colossians, Jesus was the visible image of an invisible God, okay? So, Jesus did exist. Don't let anyone tell you anything different. The second one is Christians have no fun. Now I noticed as I went on your website that uh, you have a Kairos program here. Do any of you, are any of you proud of the Kairos in the prison ministry? I've been doing that the last four years, okay? So I was on a, a I was in the prison and I was at a table I, and I go as chaplain, which is kind of fun. I'm sitting at the table and this woman, young woman sitting next to me and there were very few Catholics, most, a lot of Christians, but very few Catholics. And she said to me, when she heard I was Catholic, she said, you're Catholic? And I said, yes. She said, I didn't think Catholics were Christian. And I, <laughs> and I said, yes, they are. Uh, we believe in the same Jesus Christ, same scripture that, that all other Christians do. And then she said, well, can we talk sometime? And I said, sure. And we sat down and had this talk. Honest to God, she said, well, can you can you drink wine? <laughs> then she said, but you can only have sex if you want to have a baby, right? I said, no. I, I was explaining to her the beauty of, of, uh, of sex within marriage and sex in a committed relationship and, and that yes, and that God wants us to enjoy sex and enjoy wine and enjoy food and have a wonderful life, just not to an excess just so we're not hurting anyone else, and certainly so we're not hurting ourselves. And her mouth dropped. 
I wonder how many people there are out there who think Catholics aren't Christian. How many think that there's no fun in being a Catholic, and, and probably many who think there's no fun in being a Christian. But we know different, don't we? We know the greatest happiness you can have, the, the most fun I've had in my life is with my friends who are from my parish. I could show you pictures, but I won't. <laughs> the third is that it's not scientific. Now, um, I have five children, and how many of you women were at the retreat that I, okay, so if you hear me tell the same stories, I'm sorry, okay. But my, I have these five children, and not all of them um, are, are going to the Catholic Church right now. Um, two of them are, the oldest and the youngest, and the other three are wonderfully spiritual person, one, wonderfully great kids. But I have one who doesn't, is an agnostic, okay? Um, but they're good. And when, when I talk to them, what I've discovered is that, and this, that's going to be the why for all of these, is that they have a kind of a warped view of, of the God that we believe in. They somehow link the God that we believe in with the Olympian gods that their kids are reading about. Okay, Jason, what's his name? J Jason Jackson. Percy Jackson, yeah, that was the series my kids read. And all those movies, all the movies now are about the gods and the demigods, okay? And somehow they have a way of, of thinking that's what we believe in. And they kind of smile behind their backs. You poor thing, but that's nice if it gets you through life. Okay, they don't understand. They don't understand um, the God that we believe in. And that doesn't mean that they're never going to understand it. It just means that at this point in their life, that's where they are. There are more and more scientists in academia, in research, especially as they get into quantum physics, who are beginning to understand there is so much we don't understand. And that the language we have been using as Christians for hundreds, if not thousands of years, is becoming the language of science, okay? We don't know where we're going. We don't know where we're heading. We're not going to discover who God is in some test tube or out in some skies. God will be a mystery forever. But, but the world of science more and more is coming to understand that everything can't be solved. And God is one of those things that can't be solved. The other thing, um, the why for this, is um, uh, that we've been misinformed. So a lot of the people, many of the people who think these things have just been misinformed. misinformed. But I taught a course in... Um, just, I just finished it two weeks ago. It was called Sacramental Theology and the Baltimore Catechism. How many of you remember the Baltimore Catechism? Okay. Well, I found four of mine, and I did a lot of research, and I also got the most current books on the sacraments, and learned the whole history of the sacraments. I did a lot of studying for this. But looking at that Baltimore Catechism really solidified some things in my mind. Um, and I think that many of us have been misled and have come to the understanding of who we are, or rather, who we are not, by the way we were taught to approach God and to approach ourselves. In the Baltimore Catechism, uh, you know, the Baltimore Catechism, oh, this is a, I'm not going to get onto it, Baltimore Catechism is based on the first catechism that was written after the Council of Nicene in the 16th century. That was the catechism we studied out of. Now, the answers and questions, the answers are pretty much the same, except what's been changed with Vatican II. But the new catechism just has blown it apart, opened it all up, uh, modernize the language to help us come and understand uh, what we're about. But I, 
just what I did in this class was I showed pictures from the Baltimore Catechism and I took some of those vignettes and all the different things and then, then I taught what we believe now. But this was, this was a picture from the Baltimore Catechism about what the church was like after the first millennium, okay? Now the first millennium, the first thousand years, the first several hundred years, church was very small community, very, um, especially the first 300 years. But this is what our Baltimore Catechism said. If you look at that picture on the left, you'll see that the actual church has the pope at the top, then the bishops, then priests, and then out here in the foyer are all the people. Okay? That was us. The other lesson has Christ at the top, which is really good, then the pope, then the bishops, then the priests, then the brothers and the sisters, nuns and brothers, and then the people of God. Do you see that pyramid style? How many of you thought that, that uh, nuns and priests were all the holiest people in the world and that we could never be as holy as they were? I grew up believing that. Every pope was a saint, or it seems like it. I mean, they were all pretty much canonized. And so there I was. And, and, and there's not time to get into it, but so much of the Baltimore... Do you know, okay, just quickly, of the seven sacraments, okay, the seven sacraments, almost half of the questions in the chapters on those seven sacraments were on the sacrament of penance. There were five chapters on penance, two on baptism, three on Eucharist. What was stressed in our growing up years and in the teachers who are teaching today that who I am is not enough. I am a sinner, I am a sinner, I am a sinner, and God knows I am a sinner. Praise be to Jesus, because I'm also saved. But that's not the way we looked on it. That's not the way we grew up. So a lot of the stuff that's been heaped on us came from that or came from the teachers even now who still teach that. But the glory of God is that we are good. God, if you've been in marriage encounter, you've heard the saying, God doesn't make junk. Okay. So this is what the New Catechism says about the church. The church is the people of God, gathered in the whole world. She draws her life from the word of God and the body of Christ, and so herself becomes Christ's body. A little bit different, right? The people of God are the church. All right, let's get on. What's the biggest lie? This is the lie. Did you hear that? My little ejaculation there. I'm watching the time. Holiness is not possible. That's, that's the lie. That's what uh, Kelly's telling us is the biggest lie. <clears throat> the lies in the culture as well as the lies we tell ourselves. The misinformation we've been told about who we are and what we are about and what it means to be holy. My sisters and brothers, When I used to teach, I'd say, let me see your eyes. Let me see your eyes, because this is important. This is important. I have no doubt that you are holy. You are here tonight. You showed up because you want to hear more about God. Are you perfect? No. Are you sinners? Yes. Are you holy? Yes. Because God made you, and God made you good. And here you are, trying to learn more about God, trying to get closer to God, trying to love God more. If the whole purpose of Kelly's book, the whole purpose of this mission is to convince you of that fact, that you are holy, that that is a lie that holiness is not possible. Kelly goes on to talk about the way we can become and realize our holiness is through holy moments. And this is what he says. A holy moment is when you are being the person God created you to be and you are doing what you believe God is calling you to do. Kelly was not the first one to say that. 
Here's St. Therese, the little flower. Holiness consists simply in doing the will of God and being just what God wants us to be. Isn't that the same thing? So, so being just what God wants us to be, we are each wonderful, unique people created in the image of God. Created in the image of God. No one's like you. No one will ever be like you. There's never been anyone in the whole world like you. Never will be again. But inside the core of each one of you is the same thing. Inside each of you is the image and likeness of God. So it behooves us to find out who this God is in whose image we were created. Here's God, divine mystery. Uh, Hebrew scripture, the Old Testament tells us that God is the giver of life, everlasting love, always faithful. See, we have a God who, who has wants us to know him who reaches out in every possible way, which is why those chosen people wrote those stories, okay? Why they are our forefathers and foremothers, because, because they had a special relationship with God, and they found God was with them, and they wrote their stories, and what they told us about the God they knew, the God who wanted to reveal himself to them, was that God was everlasting love, that God will always be faithful. And then finally, finally, the ultimate revelation was Jesus. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of who God is. God coming down on earth. God personified in this man, Jesus. Everything Jesus did was what God does. Everything Jesus said was what God would say. Because Jesus was the Son of God. Finally, what Jesus tells us, especially in John's Gospel, is he reveals the Trinity. Now, we start each baptism and we are baptized, what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are baptized in the Trinity. We begin each Mass with the sign of the cross. We end each Mass within the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Before we begin our prayers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is, is at, right there at the heart of who we are as Christians. And yet, well look at this first of all. This is what the Catechism tells us. The mystery of the Holy Trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith, okay? And the central mystery of Christian life. The source, of all, the source of all of the other mysteries of faith, the light that enlightens them. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of the truths of faith. Yet how much do we know about the Trinity? So let's look at this quickly. There's the pictures from our catechism, okay? Our Baltimore catechism. Um, Jesus, the Holy Ghost, and the old man there, who's God, and that's that's a very traditional picture, the shamrock, very appropriate. Uh, the one that scared me the most is the one down in the right-hand corner, the eye. I'm serious, that scared me so much. God was always watching me. And that's, that really scared me. So this is how I approached truly, until I was well into my adulthood, what the Trinity was like. It was like, like God was this powerhouse, this this uh, um, tower of power that I would pray to, okay? And when I praised God and I thanked God and I adored God, it was to the Father. I praise you, Lord. I praise you, Lord. And when I needed a friend and when I needed someone to walk with me, when I needed to know that I wasn't alone, it was Jesus who I prayed to. Jesus. Let me feel your existence. Let me feel your presence right now. And if I was taking a test when I was a kid, or if I was giving a talk like this, who did I pray to? The Holy Spirit. Come down, Lord. Fill me with your grace. Fill me with your thing. What, what I learned in that, and what's come to me since that evening in the hospital was this, that that's a very static idea of who God is. Boom, boom, boom. This power 
power towers all over. What we know about God is, first of all, one God, one nature, and that nature is love. There are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and each person has distinct characteristics, okay? But they have the same will, all right? They have the same uh, power. They have the same source. The third thing that I learned and, and had to relearn was that they're distinct only in their relationship to each other. So here's the dynamics, and I talked about this at Mass. The Trinity we belong, believe in is dynamic. It's creator, spirit, Jesus, in this huge, powerful, dynamic evolution. Father loving, son loving spirit. I used to talk about it this way. If you imagine a glass bowl filled with water, all right, and you've got father loving spirit, father loving spirit, father loving father, son, father, spirit, going faster, 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 what's going to happen to that water? It's going to just fall right over, right? That's what happens with God. And that's what creation is the outpouring of this dynamic love between father, son, and spirit. God is dynamic. God is powerful. God is not static. God is dynamic. And even more so, and we're going to talk more about this tomorrow night, in Colossians we read, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Here's the thing about the Trinity. It wasn't first comes Father, Creator, then down comes Jesus, and then comes the Spirit. It's not sequential. Father, Son, and Spirit were all there at the beginning. Jesus, Paul tells us, was there at the beginning. Oh, that's part of the mystery, but it's part of the glory. Paul was a mystic, and we're going to talk more about him tomorrow night when we talk about Jesus. But here's what he tells us, basically. So you see creator, and you see spirit, and you see Jesus. What we know is that it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and us. Jesus brings all of us, because Paul tells us that everything comes to fruition to him. He holds everything together. He brings us into this dynamic, powerful love that is God. And that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God made the world to be. And this isn't something that's new age. This isn't something that's new because the word they use is perichoresis for this. And that's a word that comes from the fourth century. The word Trinity only came about in the third century because they never talked about it in that way. They knew there was only one God. There was kind of this, what do we mean by it? But they just accepted it. But in the third century, when uh, Constantine came in and we got more popular with the Romans and we became more of a popular religion, the theologians had to sit down and say, what do we mean by this one God? And how does Jesus and Spirit and Father fit into that? And they talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And, and uh, it was actually Tertullian, Father, that's how you say it, right? Tertullian. Yeah, in the, in the third century, who came up with that word, with, with the word Trinity. The first time. It's not in Scripture, you know that. For the first 200 years of the church, we didn't talk about Trinity. But when they had to decide, how do we explain this, they came up with that word. And, patachoresis is a word that means dynamic and creative energy, eternal movement, mutuality and interrelatedness, all right? And that term, perichoresis, comes from the fourth century, from the Capetitian fathers. There's, I think, two Gregories and a Basil in there, okay? But they came up with this term, perichoresis. And you know, at the heart of that word is the word chore, which comes from, which means dance. So choreography, you know? So how they saw it was like this great divine dance. Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. And, and I worked at St. Anthony's, as Father said earlier, and they used to uh, publish the Catholic updates. And there was an update by, um, by a, a great Jesuit theologian whose, whose name was Kevin, <coughs> whose name was Kevin Overberg, Kenneth Overberg. And he wrote this piece, and he used that word perichoresis. And in it he says, the Trinity is eternal movement, 
of reciprocal giving and receiving, expressing the essence and unity of God. God is overflowing love, leading humanity and all creation into the divine dance of God's love. Oh, man. That's what, that's what God is. That's what Trinity is. I remember it as um, CDE, creative dynamic energy that's extraordinarily personal. That's God. That's God. Creative dynamic energy that's extraordinarily personal. And that's what, we're, that's what fills us. That's what makes us walk and talk. That's what gives us all the energy we need to do what we need to do for the love of God. That, that's what makes, uh, oh, you don't know Thea Bowman, or some of you may know Sister Thea Bowman, who was in a wheelchair when she came to talk to us in Dayton, dying of cancer. She died like three weeks later. When she was preaching to us, she got up out of that wheelchair and she preached to us walking around that stage. That was the power of God. We saw it on that stage. The creative, dynamic power that's God, that's available to every one of us. That you are, that you're called, that you're already a part of. Honest to gosh, you're already a part of it. You just have to open yourself and claim it. Open yourself and claim it. So there's God's plan for the earth. Love, peace, harmony. A world where all things are one in God. And where we all know that, where there's peace and there's harmony, and, and it's just, that's, what, that's God's plan. We are in God, all right? God is in us and in all creation. And that's called panentheism. It is not pantheism. Pantheism means that, um, all, that all things are God. It's panentheism. All things are in God. And God is in all things. Now, Pope Francis says he really likes to put it, emphasize the fact that we are all in God. And God's in us. But the emphasis is we are all in God. And we can claim that. We are created in the image and likeness of God. And like God, we're created to be in loving relationships, to create good things. We are the only creatures on the earth that can make and create beautiful things out of the things that God created. That's why we're created in the image and likeness of God. That's one of our God-like characteristics, that a, that a sculptor can take wood and carve something beautiful, that a woman can take flour and salt and soda, baking soda and make soda bread like we had last night, that we can create things from the things that God created. We are like God. We are image of, the image of God. We were, now, this is important. We were created to love and be loved. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How can you do that? How can you love your enemies? So let's talk about what love is. All right, this is... Love is more than a feeling. Love is more than the songs we hear and the romance novels we read. The love we are talking about is a bond, Okay? It's a bond, and that's part of the definition of love. It's what makes us like this, okay? And sometimes that good, wonderful feeling is there. Sometimes it's not. But love is also always a choice. And if anyone, Roger and I have been married 54 years now, anyone who is married knows that love is a choice if you're in a successful marriage, and I'm not kidding around. There are days when you have to choose to love. And I can't count the number of days I have chosen not to love, okay? I taught the women this prayer that I used to say, that I still say, and now Roger says it, and it's this. Because I know Roger loves me. How could he stay with me this long if he didn't love me? Okay, here's, here's the prayer. Um, Lord Jesus, Fill me with your love and your strength. Fill every cell of my being so that I will remember and never forget that Roger loves me no matter what he says or does. Okay? Because, you know, we know those places to poke each other. Then I say, and, and Lord, let, let 
Roger, remember that I love him no matter what I say or do. And when I say that prayer long enough, help me to remember with every cell and fiber of my being that God, Roger loves me no matter what he says or does. I can get through a day without losing it. Okay? He has started saying it now. And man, I wish we had started it 30 years ago. All right? It would have been a lot easier. Anyway, it's always a choice. And when we give our love, it's always got to be a gift. Do you understand that? No strings attached. I love you. I love you. No matter what happens, I love you. Okay? Real love is a choice and it's a gift. We were created to love and be loved. We are to love others as God loves us. And this is how we can love our enemies. That means we respect them and we do not wish them evil. That's all it means. Don't have to have dinner with them. Don't have to like them. Don't have to talk to them. But you will respect them and you will only wish them good. That's that bond of love that says you are my brother and you are my sister no matter what. So each one of us is absolutely unique. We are shaped by our gifts and limitations as well as by our situ life situations. We're all unique and life has shaped us. Yet at our core, we're all the same. So here's what the world would look like if all the people would become who God created them to be, the world would be the place of peace and harmony that God wants, that God created. And this is the kingdom of God. This is the reign of God. This is God's plan. This is what Jesus proclaimed. This is what Jesus, and I have to say this clearly, this is another let me see your eyes moment. Absolutely, our goal is heaven. But we're here to build the kingdom of earth, kingdom of God here too, okay? So Paul tells us to keep our eye on the prize. And that's heaven. But you know what? You're going to do a lot of stumbling if you keep your eye on that prize. We live every day loving and trying to make this world a better place. And yes, by, by uh, not polluting, etc., but a better place in our homes, a better place in our church, a better place in whatever field of authority we have. So yes, we are about getting to heaven. But more important, when Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom, he was proclaiming it now. Wherever Jesus was, the kingdom was. And what Jesus wants for us is wherever we are, the kingdom should be. We should be loving as God loves. And if that happens, then we are living in the kingdom and the people around us are exposed to what the kingdom of God is about. Kingdom of God is where God's love reigns. So here it is, peace, harmony, etc., etc. That's the way it's supposed to be. What happens? Boom! Sin enters the world. And we have the story of Adam and Eve. So here it is. Adam and Eve have everything they want, right? They're living in paradise. And this is one of those stories that um, is absolutely true, but may or may not have happened, okay? But the truth in the story is so fundamental to who we are as people. They had everything they wanted. They lived in paradise, okay? God said to them, only one thing I don't want you to do is just eat from that fruit tree over there. Just don't eat from the fruit of that tree. Okay, God, we got it. You enjoy life. Along comes the tempter, and the tempter, the serpent, says to Eve, come and eat the fruit. And she says, no, 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 that's the tree we can't eat from. And, and, and uh, he says, oh, you know why? Because God doesn't want you to be like God. If you eat from the fruit of this tree, you will be like God. That's what it says in Scripture. You will be like God. And that's the sin. She takes the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to Adam, who doesn't have to be convinced, okay? He just takes the apple and eats it. And, and, and they commit this sin of wanting to be like God, which means two things. One, 
They want to be in control. And two, even though they have everything, they want more. And is that not the sin that we have, that we, the word they use in the catechism is concupiscence. The, the, it seems like that's the sin we are born with, wanting more and wanting to be in control. The world would be a lot better place if I were in control, okay? My kids don't think so, but I happen to know <laughs> that it would rain when it was supposed to rain, and it wouldn't ice up on those days when I have to teach, all right? If we had control, it <laughs> the bottom line is, in small matters, we want control, don't we? Whether we will admit it or not. Why doesn't it go this way? I mean, jeez. It is my big sin. I mean, I'm, I'm learning as I'm getting older that it doesn't have to be my way, that I don't have to be in control. And the other thing is, is that we want more. They had everything, but they weren't satisfied. So what happens? They eat the apple. God comes in. Let me show this little diagram here. Here's the effects of Adam and Eve's sin. Some texts say that the bond of love was broken. But I'm going to tell you, and theologians today are saying, that we can't break the bond of love because we are always in God and God is always in us. But there's an illusion of separateness, a strong illusion that says, I'm not good enough for God, God and I are separate. Okay? And that separateness isn't just between God, it's from ourselves, it's from each other. So look at the story from self. Here, women have heard this because it's my favorite story. Here they are, walking through paradise, buck naked, all right? 30 pounds, 40 pounds overweight. I am great. Look at me. I am great. What happens after they eat the apple? They cover themselves. They're ashamed. And that happens to us, okay? Somehow inside of us, there's this thing that either I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, don't look at me, God. Don't look at me. That came with that fall. And they were estranged from each other. Now, remember Adam said, ah, this woman, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? When God says to Adam, who ate this fruit? Adam says, that woman. <laughs> Is that flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone? No. There is this basic loss of trust that enters in so that even, even though I know Roger loves me, God, he's stayed with me for 60 years we've been together now, all right? Even though we've been there that long, I still don't think he loves me. Bottom line is, how could he love me? I'm just not worth it, okay? But there's this thing, I'm not worth it, and I don't trust it. And that's, that's in all of us. That's part of the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve, all right? And then, of course, we feel that separation from God. Go, don't look at me, God. I'm not holy enough. I'm not holy enough. And of course we're not holy enough for God. God's the holy of holies, but I am holy. God is smiling down on me. Why won't I smile back? I tell myself that all the time. So that illusion of separation brings in fear. And that fear brings shame and distrust and anger and jealousy. And all of that enters the world, and mostly fear. Fear of being laughed at, fear of being loved, not being loved, fear of losing this, fear of not having enough, fear, fear, fear. And we cover up that fear with anger, and we cover up that fear with jokes, and we cover up that fear with all sorts of stuff, but that's the basis of so many sins, along with, of course, pride, which is the senior sin. But God loves us and constantly calls us back. So gone through this before, we'll go quickly. Calls, sets up this thing, calls Abraham, makes this covenant. Moses, Passover, brings the people out of Egypt. David makes Israel a great name. Heroes and heroines, David, Esther, Elijah, 
All of these people, that whole Hebrew scripture, come to me, come to me, this is who I am, come to me, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. Still it's not happening, so what happens? The ultimate invitation, the ultimate invitation, Jesus Christ. Jesus is born, and there's a new covenant. Abraham, and we did this during the Mass, these Jewish people were God's people or God's children. God would be with them. God is in us. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Jesus gives us the Beatitudes. In Jesus, through Jesus, and with Jesus, that whole illusion of separateness is broken. In Jesus, through Jesus, and with Jesus. If we could understand just a little bit of who Jesus was, if through prayer and study and Bible, if we just could under, and mostly prayer, if we could come to understand who Jesus is, was, and will always be, we will know this is true in Jesus, with, through Jesus. I am one with God. That's why that's called the great prayer at the Mass, the doxology. So Father at every Mass holds up that Eucharist, and we say that in Jesus, through Jesus, with you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours. In Jesus, through Jesus, with Jesus. Tomorrow, it's all about Jesus. He heals our brokenness, emptiness, and brings us to wholeness and salvation. Okay, I'm just going to do this quickly. Nick Locamp was a Franciscan who had his doctorate degree in moral theology, and he was my spiritual director for 20 years. He's gone now, but he wrote me this email once because I asked him what salvation was. And it says, peace. I went through six years of theology, and I didn't learn any of the stuff I'm hanging on to now. Anyway, salvation comes from the noun salus, which equals welfare, health, well-being. The adjective is salvus, meaning well and healthy and whole, or the non salvato, salvation. The meaning of salvation includes all that Jesus does to bring us to completion, fulfillment, wholeness, integration, maturity, would be kinder words. So the process of salvation would include the forgiveness of our sins, the newness of life, a deepening of our unity with all, but listen to this, but I think it would also involve any and all development of the human person under the grace, which is God's love, the development of my talents and gifts and abilities and capacities to become all that we were created to be, all for the service of the kingdom of God. And what that all means, and what I was so blessed to have him, what, what it all means is this. When we die and we come in front of the face of God, I, I, the women know this, I lost my faith. I stopped believing in God when I was about 34 because I couldn't believe in this God who was keeping tabs on me, this judgmental God. That's when I first discovered a God of love at Teresa's Shrine, St. Teresa's Shrine here on a retreat that I went to. But, but what I know is that, um, what I know is that there are some parts of me, and that I can't fill, okay? No matter how hard I try, I can't change, I can't fill them. I can't find that completion anywhere else except right through prayer. Again, this is tomorrow night that I'm getting into, but, but it's through asking God to fill me, to make me whole, to make me who I was created to be. Because when I get to heaven, that's what God's going to ask me. Are you the person I created you to be? the unique individual person I created you to be. Did you develop your talents and your habits? Did you use them in the service of the people of God? Did you use them in love? So what's our jobs as humans to figure out who we are and what our gifts are? To pray to God to be filled so that we can be healed of our brokenness and be the persons that we're called to be? Salvation means to be whole. And we cannot be whole without God filling up all the holes that's within us. So here's St. Therese. Holiness consists simply in doing God's will and being just what God wants us to be. And the baptism 
is our call to holiness. We are baptized, and at the end of the baptism, we're anointed, and the priest says to us, or the deacon says to the child, I anoint you as priest, prophet, and king. Now we say in our parish, because king is, is a masculine term, we say a member of the royal family. A member of the royal family. That's what we baptize our babies in. My dear sisters and brothers, that's what you were baptized. You were baptized as a priest. That means you don't have to go through anyone to pray to God. You go directly to God to pray. You come here to pray with the community, but you and God are like this. Okay, you don't need any priest. We need our priest to preside, to facilitate, to be the person who calls us together and presides. But you and God are like this. You are priest. You are prophet. You have to witness. You're called to witness that faith. And you, you are a member of the holy family, of the royal family. You are, when I work with the younger kids, I say a prince or a princess in the royal family. Here's another St. Therese. Use the gifts you have received and pass on the love that has been given to you. We were created in the image and likeness of the most holy and sacred divine being who created us. We have forgotten this if we ever knew it. There's the connection, Jesus Christ. Risen and alive today. Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn of all creation and in whom all things are held together. And that's where we're going to pick up tomorrow. In Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation. We're going to talk about the Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who died on the cross and rose, and the cosmic Jesus. But right now, oh, here's the priestly prayer like this. I have given them the glory you gave to me, Jesus says. And they may be as they may that they may be one as we are one, with me in them and you in me. It's in scripture. God is in you. You are a priest, prophet, and a member of the royal family. And Father Jim and I are going to remind you of that right now because we are going to do a second anointing from your baptismal, okay? Other gentlemen.